Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Jerry Craft's book, New Kid, was the first graphic novel to win the Newbery Medal. It recognizes contributions to children's literature. And in fact, it's the only book to ever win the Newbery Medal, the Kirkus Prize, and the Coretta Scott King Award. New Kid is also one of many books that have recently been banned in schools over the past few years. When I heard that it was banned, I, t- you know, I tried to research it, and I found that it was being banned because it teaches critical race theory. So I, my first step was to Google critical race theory. I had no idea what it was. And then they uh, start lobbing terms like Marxism. And I'm like, how is it Marxism? That was Jerry Kraft in an NPR interview from last year. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. There's a history of exclusion in comic strips, both in terms of who's represented positively on the page and which artists are syndicated nationally. Despite those challenges, both of today's guests use their ink to expand our idea of what comic strips can be. Later in the show, we talk to Barbara Brandon Croft. She's creator of Where I'm Coming From. It's the first comic strip created by a Black woman to be nationally syndicated outside of Black media in the U.S. But first, Jerry Craft is a comic strip artist. He's author and illustrator of the graphic novels New Kid and Class Act. Jerry was a longtime Connecticut resident, but now lives in Florida. His newest book is called School Trip, and it came out in April. Jerry, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You have spent so much of your career writing about young people. And one of the things that I think is particularly unique about your approach is that it feels relatable. It doesn't feel like an adult trying to tell a young person's story. It feels authentic. Where does that perspective come from in terms of that authenticity of telling young people's stories in their own voices? You know, I feel like so much of me being able to do this is how much I have struggled to keep the inner 12-year-old Jerry Craft alive. I try to be happy. You know, I still have sometimes a very idealistic look at the world. I really need that in order to tell stories that resonate with kids, that have hope. I try not to do books where kids are downtrodden and, you know, the weight of the world. I really like still talking about the innocence because there's not, especially with kids of color in books and movies, there's not a lot of innocence. They just want a lot of fun stories with kids who look like us. And so I try extra hard to to make those stories. Some of these stories, Jerry, it feels autobiographical. Like there's an experience that you've had or that others around you have had And a real strength of your books is, again, it doesn't feel like just this character's experience. It is so relatable to people across backgrounds. Is that important to you as well, to have characters that are relatable and also sort of fulfill the the diversity that exists for kids of color? 
Yeah, you know what is so weird is that I used to do a comic strip called Mama's Boys, and I published a few books based on the characters, but I could never get it syndicated um, daily in newspapers because they were like, well, kids in the Midwest won't be able to relate. I was always kind of taught that books with Black characters were only for Black readers, you know, that they could never be universal. But, you know, when I think about it and and I say now, like, you know, when kids go see Avatar, they're rooting for the blue people. You go to see Shrek, you're rooting for the green people. Why can't they root for brown people? What is it about the genres of graphic novels and cartoons that appeal to you in order to tell these stories that you say have these universal themes of heroes, but still allow you to bring in these layers and complexities of identity and experience? When I was a kid, the one thing I absolutely hated to do was to read books. Um, I did not become a reader until I was an adult, basically, with kids of my own, because then I started reading them bedtime stories because I wanted them to embrace books in a way that I never had. You know, when you're not a reader, I always say, well, what would have made me a reader? One is finding mirrors, finding a kid who looked like me, acted like me, but, you know, it's not depressing. You know, that that was one. And the other was in the graphic novel format, I think that... Um, Kids who are more visual learners uh, can really get so much more, you know, like for people who say, oh, graphic novels aren't real books. You know, it's like it, it stimulates two sides of your brain because the kid can read the pictures. I mean, look at the pictures, decide what's going on, look at the words. And then depending on how those go together, it could mean something completely different. You know, like if I said, uh, if the word balloon said, I wish you would, and a kid is smiling like, oh, I wish you would, that'd be great. But now if they're frowning and it says, I wish you would, then that means, oh, I wish you would, you know, because there's going to be some trouble, <laughs> right? So there's a whole lot more um, to graphic novels than people think. And it's not like all of a sudden when I'm writing a graphic novel, I don't concern myself with plot and character arc and story arc. Of course, I put all that stuff in there. Um, so I think that for people like, well, my kid only reads graphic novels. What do I do? Like, Let them because they're reading. That's like saying, oh, my kid only eats vegetables. Well, okay, they're eating healthy. Let's talk about that accessibility and books as mirror. And I want to talk in particular about your book, New Kid. Our daughter started at an elite private school a few years ago, at the time was one of very few Black students. And so when she started seventh grade, we gave her your book because I thought this will help us introduce a conversation that's not scary, that's not intimidating, and is related to her love of graphic novels. And she reminded me of this two days ago when I said I was preparing for this interview with you. This book has really allowed people to engage in understanding the experience of being Black and a new kid in a space that often can feel hostile and can feel isolating. Why was it so important for you to tell that story in New Kid and to center a Black child within that story? 
So the important thing to me was one, again, not putting in anything catastrophic because, you know, the books, I'm sure if you've read 500 books with African-American characters and 490 of them, somebody close to one of the main characters dies or the house burns down or so-and-so gets arrested or something like that. So I, I think that sometimes society thinks, well, if nothing catastrophic happens, then they're, they're doing good. So your daughter's in this private school. She should just be lucky. But there is so much hidden trauma. You know, it's hard enough for any kid being in middle school sometimes, you know, depending on the, the situation. But I always say, you know, imagine being one of the few girls in an all boys school, one of the few boys in all girls school, or even to parents, you know, you and I as African-Americans have probably always been some of the few of our kind that are in our spaces, but very rarely will uh, it be the other way around where, you know, a, some of my white friends have never been in a room where there are 300 African-Americans and five white people. It's not always easy. And by putting that out there, I just wanted to show kids um because again when they see black kids a lot of times if they're only going by the media they're athletes rappers gangs it's the same stories over and over again so when they meet your daughter for the first time they may th have all these preconceived notions by rooting for jordan and drew in new kid and class act i just wanted to show that Listen, take the time to get to know someone. And it's not even just from an African-American perspective, because one of the kids, Ramon, all the kids think he's Mexican and he's, and he's Nicaraguan. And he's like, listen, you've known me since kindergarten. So the whole book really, even though the main characters are black, it really is about respect. You know, taking the time to learn how to pronounce someone's name correctly, you know, learn things about them. And I think that um, that's why a lot of parents and teachers love it because of the conversations that it brings with the kids. Now, conversely, that's also why the book is banned, which I'm sure we'll talk about, because some parents don't want those conversations. They want everything to be status quo. Let's talk about that, because in an ideal setting, in a rational setting, it shouldn't be controversial to tell stories of kids in their fullness and in their beauty. It shouldn't be cause for alarm. And yet, as you said, your books are being banned in schools and public libraries across the country. And I'm curious how that feels for you as an author and as an illustrator. And as you mentioned, as a parent who's trying to carve out this space for kids to just be? I mean, is it a badge of honor to be able to say my book is banned? Or is it also a cause for fear and alarm that if this is what triggers that kind of extreme reaction, what does it mean for our society? There, there are so many feelings and, you know, there's some deep sorrow in there too for the kids who felt seen by this book and only to have it snatched away. And you think that in 2023, 
you know, you think things get better, but the pendulum always swings one way and then it swings back the other way. So it, it really is sad, especially when you think of certain states that are trying to uh, make it more of a, from a, a legal perspective, not just, you know, well, we don't really want you to read this, but it's like, oh, if, you know, your teacher gives you this book, they're going to be in trouble. So that that's really sad because there really is, you know, people who take the time to read it, actually read it or have their kids read it, they say it's funny, it's loving, there's a loving mom and dad, you know, there aren't any stereotypes, like even Liam, who is white and wealthy, I didn't do him as the traditional spoiled rich kid. So he who is white, Jordan is African-American light skin, Drew is African-American darker skin, or best friends, you know? So with the three of them, they're three of the nicest kids that you could hope to meet. So when you have parents that don't even read the book and, and claim that I'm teaching critical race theory or Marxism or things that they don't even know what it means themselves, it's just these talking points to just throw out there. Um, that is pretty sad, you know, to have school visits canceled where my, when I talk about my life, it's literally what I told you of going from a very reluctant reader to an author, the only author to ever win the Newbery Medal, the Credit Scott King Author Award, and the Kirkus Prize. In an ideal world, that would be a movie on Disney+. Plus. But the fact that um, I wasn't on, I didn't get a lot of publicity for winning those awards. But as soon as I get banned, I'm on Joy Reid and NPR and the BBC. And, you know, it's like in literally an international story. Um, so the fact that the kids are the ones who are missing out is really the saddest part of all. In 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 New Kid, there is a scene where Jordan is talking to his teacher, Miss Roll. And she says, basically, he should be ha just be happy. And he says, well, it's okay for these things to actually happen to me. It's just not okay for me to talk about them. And that pretty much sums up everything with what's going on with the book banning. That's Jerry Craft, award-winning author of New Kid. When we return, Jerry talks about how a racist incident in a Connecticut store shaped the scene in his new book, School Trip. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're listening back to a conversation about graphic novels and comic strips that have changed American culture. Later in the show, we'll hear from Barbara Brandencroft. She's creator of the pioneering comic strip, Where I'm Coming From. But first, we continue our conversation with Jerry Kraft. He's the Newbery Medal winning author of the graphic novels, New Kid and School Trip. Jerry not only writes books for young people, he also spends a lot of time working with them. I asked Jerry if we give kids enough credit for their ability to deal with difficult topics. Oh, absolutely not. This is one of the racial disparities. So like some of the books that are being banned might be of, you know, a... 10-year-old African-American girl from the 60s who is responsible for integrating a school system while adults are yelling and there are police and she has, you know, armed guard. So that little girl can do all of that, but your little girl can't read about that because she'll feel bad and that makes her uncomfortable. You know, that's just not fair. But I mean, this whole thing is not fair. And it's never been fair, for the most part. But that is just kind of how it's always been. And now if I were to write a book about this kid who grows up because he has never seen himself in books and writes books about being a kid of color and then gets his books banned, then those books would be banned because I'm talking about having my books banned. The rules just always change to to make sure that people like us lose. I think it's often, Jerry, about teaching people from a very early age what we think their place should be in this society. The people mm-hmm. that we think are entitled to dream and imagine versus those who we think are destined for pain and suffering and the ways in which we fail to acknowledge that, but also don't inspire kids to imagine life beyond where they are and possibility. And that brings us to your new book, School Trip, which is set in Paris. And Mm -hmm. I am, you know, dating myself now, but I'm old enough to remember all the controversy when the Cosby show came out. And people said, is this going to be relatable? How could a black kid relate to a family where there are two parents who are gainfully employed and, as you said, aren't just about struggle? This is a book set in Paris. Tell us a little bit about this book and why you chose that particular setting. So that to me is almost as dangerous as being banned. When you have someone who is pretending to support me, but then says, well, I'm not going to share my book with your kid, with my students, because they won't be able to relate 
um, that's even worse because you're saying that kids of color need to stay in that little box and, as you say, know, know their place. One of the reasons why I did this is when have you ever seen kids of color travel in books and literature? You know, uh, my sons have been all over the world and we meet other black families whose kids have been all over the world. And there are, you know, schools that do take these school trips. But the thing is, again, what is it that they can't relate to, even if they've not been there themselves? Isn't it better for a kid to say, wow, one day I hope to go to Paris as opposed to one day I hope to join a gang, you know? And so you're also saying that, you know, kids won't be able to relate to these kids going to Paris for a week, but they can relate to a kid who is going to wizard school and flies on a broom and waves his wand around, you know? And again, those are the things that just keep us in a box. And so you get the same kind of African-American kid over and over again. And because you don't give them the same freedom to grow. And as a result, a lot of these kids, black kids from these independent schools are just traumatized by the time that they leave. You know, and I talked to a lot of the schools and they're like, oh, well, we try to get, you know, our black students are alum to come back and, and be mentors, but they want nothing to do with this place. Once they're done, they're done. You know, they, they just wipe their hands. And it's because of the boxes that society puts them in. And again, it's hard enough just going and you know, doing your SATs and your papers and all that without being the only kid. You know, what, one of the things that I always say is um, if the only books that girls could read were like The Handmaid's Tale. Now, not that it's not a great book, not that it's not well written, not that it doesn't, you know, but what does that do for you? If that's all that you read as a kid. You know, what does that do for your daughter to show that you are destined to be subservient? You know, and I think that that's what 80% of the books with African-American protagonists have that same kind of second-class citizen. And um, that's why I, I just don't do those books. You know, I just try to always do something that we haven't seen, but that we so richly deserve. You write about things that we haven't seen, but you also write about things that are within our reach. And one of the challenges often, Jerry, is particularly for people who have achieved some degree of success is that they don't want their children to experience that kind of pain and challenge. Or they think I won't share those parts of my experience because I don't want them to feel like that's their determined experience. But you include in this newest book, and I'm not going to reveal too much for our listeners, I'll just say buy the book. But there is a portion in the book where you talk about this fear, this reluctance that one of your character has about returning a shirt where the security tag is left on. 
because there's the fear that even though that character has done nothing wrong, they will be viewed as a criminal and be treated as such. It was a moment that resonated with me as a parent, as a person who still to this day has that fear of what will happen. As an author, as a creator, do you feel a responsibility to tell these stories in their fullness and still maintain that sense of hope and joy that comes through your work? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I will I'll give a little background on that. And, th and this happened to my son. My son, who was maybe 20 at the time, bought a shirt from a store in Connecticut and they left a tag on it. You know, the the electronic tag. And he bought it for a 4th of July party, which was two weeks down the line. So he never noticed it. So that morning he gets up and he goes, oh, dad, it still has the security tag on it. Okay, listen, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go to the store and have him take off the tag. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like almost if I had to tackle him and I'm like, I will go with you. And so we went and... um even though, you know, I had like the the customer card, you know, like the member thing that I'm like, look, just pull up the ID and you will see that. Well, you don't have to receive the language and the tone that they spoke to us. It was just horrible. And I'm like, I, I'm a dad with my son. And you're still thinking that he stole the shirt where there's not a. Oh, okay, sir. You know, how are you? Oh, we understand. What's we'll it? You know, that whole customer's always right kind of thing. And there's a way that sometimes people think that they need to talk to us. Like, even now, I go to stores and if there are white customers, like, oh, hello, sir. Yes, thank you, ma'am. And I get to, hey, buddy, what's going on? Hey, boss. Like, why am I, buddy, a boss and not sir, like everyone else? And those are the kind of subtle things that I put in my books. I will tell you that I have a dress in my closet right now that's been there for a year because the store made it clear that entering that space again to correct their mistake could end badly and could end differently. And out of all of the uncertainty that we face in this world, because your, your work isn't just bound to the US, it's really international now, with all of the uncertainty, all of those reminders, subtle and direct, that try to define people's worth. You are committed to using your art to inspire people, to be a mirror and a reflection for people, but really to also remind us of our role in creating that future that we want. As you look back on your work and you look forward to the work that you're continuing to do, what's the legacy that Jerry Craft has created? You know, there's so much, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So even as Jerry Craft author, there are still schools where I'll go in if the, you know, the um, woman at the front desk is older and back in her day, authors didn't look like us, you know, will not necessarily look up and I'll give me the same greeting like, hey, how are you? It's like, okay, he's, you know, dropping off DoorDash or he's, you know, I'm just going to make them wait. 
I have gone to schools where I'm like, I'm Jerry Craft, and they take me to this room, and I'm expecting to see all these excited kids, and they thought that I was a copier, you know? So those kind of things, to me, what my legacy, I would love for it to be, is you don't really see iconic African-American characters. So in the way of Harry Potter, Wimpy Kid, Percy Jackson, there really is no Black characters. Like in, in my lifetime as a young kid, it was Fat Albert. But then they played in the junkyard. So what I would love for my legacy to be is to inspire more of us to tell our stories. And just contemporary stories, like they don't always have to be happy, but they don't always have to be miserable. They don't always have to be about slavery. They don't always have to be at civil rights. You don't always have to keep going through and finding someone from 1815 who did this because, yes, it's important, but I think that kids need relatable stories, too. We are grateful for the ways that you have used your art to enlighten, but to also create pathways and opportunities. Jerry Craft is author and illustrator of the books, The New Kid and Class Act. His next book is School Trip, and it comes out in April. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Jerry Craft is author and illustrator of the books, New Kid and Class Act. His newest book is School Trip, and it came out in April. Coming up, Barbara Brandon Croft created the groundbreaking comic strip, Where I'm Coming From. She talks about how hate mail actually encouraged her to keep writing comics. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're listening back to conversations with artists whose work influences the ways we think about comic strips. Our next guest is Barbara Brandoncroft. She's a cartoonist and the visionary behind the comic strip, Where I'm Coming From. Her new book shares that same title. Barbara, welcome to Disrupted. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about the cartoon, which debuted in 1989 with the Detroit Free Press. What was the idea behind this comic strip? Originally, it was meant for a Black woman's magazine. And so in, in that way of looking at it, it was created for the Black press. I knew who my audience was going to be. And I came up with the idea of showing just women and showing just heads and women talking to women. That was the whole idea. And initially, I was going to have a different woman each time I did the strip. So, you know, in my mind, it was for a, a magazine. So that would be 12 strips in a year. So that's 12 different characters. Um, but it wasn't until Detroit. Um, but, well, it didn't happen in the magazine. The magazine folded, la la. But um, when my dad, who's also a cartoonist, got a, a letter from Detroit Free Press saying, we're looking for Black comic strips and cartoonists. We need to reflect our audience better. Did he ask them if he knew of any? And of course, he knew me. And um, I sent those same strips that I thought was going to be for Black Women's Magazine. And uh, they liked it. And I didn't change it. You know, I was like, I still called it where I'm coming from. I still talked 
as if I were talking to girlfriends, you know, to people I knew. Um, I still talked about what was on my mind, like I would do with friends. They went with it and it, um, it was successful there. Yeah. I would say it was quite successful. <laughs> Let's talk about the meaning behind the title, where I'm coming from. What's the significance there and, and how does it fit with and also shape the vantage point that you wanted to communicate with the strip? I I'm, I think that because I, had, and this was the original name of it, when it was just one woman, it's going to be, it, so it was where this one particular woman was coming from every time she spoke. So it was a way of looking at um, or hearing a black woman's perspective on a myriad of things, you know, and um, her perspective, you didn't know much else about her. You didn't, you couldn't see her body and you couldn't see her this and that. And you didn't know what her job was. You didn't know all this other background. It was just her talking about what was on her mind. And people often think it's, I'm saying where I'm coming, where Barbara's coming from, but it's, it's really where the characters are coming from which is also me. But the idea was to just understand where this person's point of view is. Those characters engage the reader in a very different way than most other comics and cartoon strips that we see. As you mentioned, when you look at the characters, you see their faces, sometimes their arms, not a full body. Instead of the characters looking at each other, they are looking toward the reader. And in that way, it feels like they are engaged in conversation with the reader and drawn in in a very different way, not just for cartoon characters, but often the ways in which Black women's voices and Black women's experiences are placed in that. Was that an intentional decision of having the characters look to the reader for that engagement? Or was it just part of the, the broader view that you wanted to portray? It was definitely my intention to have the characters talk directly to the reader. And, you know, I'll say uh, truthfully, uh, Jules, Jules Pfeiffer, cartoonist, used to watch, read him in the um, Village Voice. He did that on occasion. He had characters talk directly to the reader. And I kind of, you know, y- yanked that. I was like, I like that. I always liked it. And, you know, when she's having a conversation with a friend, like you said, they're still facing forward, you know, and, you know, like maybe they're sitting side by side, you know, giving themselves each other side glances or whatever it may be. Um, my intention there was to create an intimacy so the reader would feel like they are eavesdropping on a conversation between two friends, you know, happen to be black women and they have things that on their mind. You are the first nationally syndicated African-American woman cartoonist. It's a major accomplishment, major achievement, and one that I still take a step back and imagine what it must have been like for you in those early stages of your career as you were doing this, and not just the the milestone achievement, but perhaps some of the weight of that, of being the first. And, and also, as we always say on the show, as Vice President Kamala Harris has said, to be the first, but not the last, and working in a way to provide that. What did that achievement mean for you, particularly at that time in your career? It means a lot, honestly. Um, But I also must say that the first Black woman to be in a newspaper with a comic strip was Jackie Orms. And she was 60 years before me. Um, And she was in the Black press. She was in, you know, Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier. Um, My distinction is that I I crossed the color line. So this is the first time mainstream, I always say mainstream press, but I'm really talking black press. I mean, white press, you know, 
that's just a euphemism for the white press. So I was like the first in a major white newspaper, Detroit Free Press. And then I was the first in syndication, you know, throughout all these other mainstream white presses, <laughs> white newspapers. And um, so when I was trying to get a syndicate, I try. I was, I put out a press kit to the syndicates. And I'm like, yo, you know, you don't have any black women on your page. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> I have one. I'm published. You need to pick me up. Um, so I was kind of like trying to shame them. So, you know, when I was in my early thirties, you know, I was bold, you know, I was like, listen, you need to do this. This doesn't make sense that it, that it hasn't been done. And, um, as far as being the first black person to do something, um, I, I did a strip talking about that. You know, it's like, you know, what's really, you know, exciting, but upsetting what's really, you know, um, amazing, but hard to believe, you know, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember what I wrote, but um, is that there is at this day and time, I can still be the first black something. And I noticed my dad did it in the 60s, that very same strip. I didn't know it at the time when I was doing mine, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's incredible that you can be the first. It's 2023. And there are so many things where we still can break some barriers. You know, I'm I'm very proud to um, be able to, um, as they say, you know, open the door. Um, it did feel like when I was there that I I maybe I broke the door, opened the door, but I also clogged the door because I was in the door, and they're like, "So we have Barbara, we don't need you," you know, because they only take one black person at a time, you know, or. My dad dealt with that. You know, we can't have Luther in our paper, which is my dad's strip. We already have We Pals. I have a, a personal practice of when I read about people breaking a barrier or becoming a first in particular fields, I have this practice of sending them a note because I understand the weight of being first can sometimes feel like a hollow prize because others think, well, we checked the box. Now we're good. We've got one. But for That's all right. of the, the accolades and the celebration of your achievement, I know that you were also criticized by some folks as being anti-white anti or anti-men. Why are you speaking for Black women or through the voices of Black women? Shouldn't we have a more inclusive vision? And it's interesting that in the many ways that when people, particularly Black women, speak up and stand up, then there is the critique. Did you face backlash in being the first or, or making these kind of achievements? And if you did, how do you deal with that? Absolutely. I face backlash. Um, I got letters, you know, saying that I was anti-white or anti-male. Um, I got letters saying, why don't you go, you know, why don't you go back to Africa? You know, and this was during a time, it's, it's very different than this time because now people just are, their thumbs are going and, you know, this instant they feel a twinge of uncomfortableness. They are, you know, typing away, talking about how you're, how you're ruining things and whatever they're saying. I, I don't, I don't even care. Um, back in the day when I was doing it, that wasn't, there was not that option. People actually had to get paper out, a pen, write it down, put it in an envelope, send it, you know, get it to the post office or mailbox. It took effort to, you know, put down your nasty thoughts <laughs> and, and I received them. And, um, 
and I found them more often than not encouraging. I was like, okay, so I pushed your button. This makes you feel uncomfortable. I think that's good. I think I I made my point then because it it stirred you up a little bit. I want to talk about one of the comic strips that appears early in the book in terms mm-hmm. of what people learn from patterns and what yes. people have seen and how they have responded to exclusion by asserting their own sense of agency and their will. And in that strip, uh, the character is having this interaction with her boss and the boss is questioning, why is she reading these books during Black History Month or Women's History Month? And here's the quote from the end of it. The boss says, why do you people always have to separate yourselves? And the character says, I guess we had good teachers. The idea of segregation wasn't something we invented. And at that point, you know, if there was a mic to drop, I wanted to drop the (laughs) mic and I may have said amen a couple of times. Because in this moment of where we are in the United States, where people are afraid to teach history in its fullness, not only of, you know, it makes me uncomfortable, there's a fear that it will hold up a mirror and force people to confront the realities of that. How do you balance that kind of serious message, the truth in that, that people like to avoid, and also the humor and levity built into this, because there's nothing that the boss can say in response. Right. I mean, that's that's the beauty of being able to do a comic strip. You know, you, you don't have a lot of time with your reader. You, you can take really large um, issues and bring it down, boil it down to uh, um, a punchline. You know, basically, the way I created it was to know what I wanted to say at the end and then write the dialogue to to meet that point, you know, to to get me there. Um, but I'm going to credit my dad. He's a, you know, my dad was a, a phenomenal cartoonist and, you know, beyond Luther, he did so many um, great strips. And so I was immersed in that. I, I saw it all around me. It was in our house. It was on our walls. So there's something I think that's kind of similar about my sense of humor and my dad's sense of humor. Let's talk about your father, who, as you say, was also a pioneering cartoonist, the late Brumsick Brandon Jr. The main yeah. character of the syndicated Trip Luther was named after the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You helped work on that strip as a teenager. And yet, as you said, your father had this broader body of work in multiple spaces that also created pathways, opportunities for voice. How did your father's work influence you, either in the the way that you imagine your role as a cartoonist or thinking about what he created and what you wanted to create differently in that same spirit? What's that legacy that you carry? It's it's interesting. I did not know I was going to be a cartoonist, even when I was helping him with his comic strip. You know, I didn't I did know I like to um, communicate visually. You know, I, I I thought I'd be in the arts some kind of way. I didn't know how. Um, it wasn't until I was asked to come up with a comic strip that I said, oh, I could do that. And uh, then, you know, it's like the light bulb going off. But seeing my dad's work was, you know, it, it was heady. My dad um, did uh, a lot of um, comics for Freedom Ways, which was a Black publication, a magazine, a quarterly journal for um, the Black intelligence intelligence, you know, the 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 elite. And once a year, they had him do strips, um, a cartoon feature. And um, he was 
an entrepreneur. He came up with a book called Some of My Best Friends. You know, Langston Hughes was like, I love this man. He's like, can you give me some of these? I want to sell these books. Mike, I mean, imagine Langston Hughes sending my dad a fan letter. What? You know, that's that's incredible. You know? And my dad did this uh, board game back in the day called Cullud, C-U-L-L-U-D. That's how instead of colored, you know, we say Cullud. And um, it was a, a board game and that you play, but you could never win. You know, it was like you always, t- if you got to go two steps ahead, it was like you got here, go three steps back. You landed here, you go to jail. There was no way to win the game. He did all kinds of things. Um, we um, put together an exhibit um, with my work and my dad's work called Still Racism in America, a retrospective in cartoons. And so we show a lot of my dad's older work, some of Luther's, some of his stuff post-Luther and my work. For each piece that's on the wall, we just the only thing we put there was the year. It might be a, a section on police brutality. Um, you could see what my dad did in the 60s and the 70s, what I talked about in the 90s, what I talked about in the 2000s. It, it's really, uh, I, I think, you know, now breaking my arm, patting myself in the back, a really effective way to show how we are still dealing with this. And it's a real education. You know, it was at the Billy Ireland at the Ohio State University. And we're talking about bringing it to another university because it's an education. I hope we get it to Florida. <laughs> Just get under somebody's skin. (laughs) Creating this new book, this new collection of your past strips. I wonder what that was like for you to see the journey of your own work, but how your work has been in conversation with the broader happenings in this country. What was that experience like for you? It was kind of wild because what what um, when the publisher, Jordan Quarterly, they were interested in putting a book together. I was like, really? Um, and they said yes. And um, they had my first two books that came out with the syndicate. Um, but that was the early years. I was like, you know, I did this till 2005. And they're like, show us. And they're like, oh, we have to put it all in there. And then it was a, a matter of editing it down. You couldn't show everything. And not all of them are good, quite frankly. You know, you could, as any artist would do, look at it, their old stuff. You're like, what was I thinking? You know, so we edited it down. But it was interesting for me to go back through it and um, and realize that some of these things, I, I still feel exactly the same way. I would, I would still do this strip exactly the same way. You, in 2016, started writing and creating comic strips again, and you post some of those on Instagram. And as yes. we mourn the decline in newspapers, the decline in newspaper subscriptions, and think about how social media, for all of its scariness, can actually be this force to connect to new audiences, but to also get the word out there, get the art out there. Why did you decide to start posting on Instagram to highlight your work? Um, Certainly when, um, um, you know, 45 was elected, um, I had to, it would have, you know, come out my ears (laughs) if I didn't start writing things down. It was just so overwhelming. So that was my very first trip, you know, America put, white supremacy on the ballot, guess what happened? Obama backlash. This is what happened. You know, it's like, um, so that was the first one coming back. I kept doing it. And then I started putting it on Facebook. So my 500 friends were like, ah, keep going. You know, they, you know, they, they liked it and things. And, and somebody said, why don't you put it on Instagram? It's the same as Facebook. I was like, it is? Anyway, that's how I figured it out. And that's why I started putting it there. And that's why it's a new format, you know, um, it's to fit a, uh, 
a phone, the aspect ratio is better in this format. It makes me have to come to my point really quickly too, because it's only, I only have two chances, you know, to come up with what I'm trying to say. Um, so that, that was a challenge, um, but it's being well-received. And I asked the folks, um, the, the folks who did the book, Droning Quarterly, if they would put in some of my newer things in the book. Um, and they agreed to. So I'm, I'm proud of that too. To see the fruits of our labor and to understand, particularly for young people today, I think they need to be reminded that greatness exists in so many different formats. And no matter what the world is telling them about what they can be, there are people who have achieved, who continue to achieve, and that they can be a part of that legacy. So the same way that you acknowledge the legacy of your father, the acknowledge of, of other Black women cartoonists who came before you, we have an obligation to tell those stories. Because if we don't tell them, it allows a narrative of negativity to really undermine that. As you look back over your tremendous career, all that you've achieved and all that you are continuing to achieve to be in that conversation. What is it about being a cartoonist that you most love? <laughs> the uh, anonymity, you know, you're, 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 you are um, putting your pen to page and um, drawing it and putting it out there, but I can still be my quiet self. I, I'm not all that comfortable in front of a lot of people. Actually, I'm trying to change that for those very reasons that you spoke about, because uh, I think it is important to let people know who I am and what I've done. It makes me feel good when somebody says that I inspired them. You know, they're like, I'm a budding cartoonist. And just hearing your story makes me feel like I can do it. And somebody else said to me that um, they were a cartoonist and they haven't been able to get it out there. But hearing me say that I stuck to my guns and did it the way I wanted to do it made them feel that they should do this, they could do the same thing. Barbara Brandon-Croft is a cartoonist and the visionary behind the comic strip, Where I'm Coming From. Her new book shares the same name. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This episode was produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Emily Cherish, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted, by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Let's keep creating.